Welcome to The Naked Monk. The Naked Monk is for those exploring life and the human condition. We are interested in ideas that were once the domain of religion or spirituality, but which today include existentialism, even atheism. Call it philosophy as a way of life, the yearning not just for what feels good, but for what is good. Hi, I'm Stephen Scatini. I was raised Catholic before I trained in depth as a Buddhist monk. Today I'm untethered, but I'm as fascinated as ever by what life can be and the creativity with which we pursue it. My guests and I are seekers of freedom, a deep life, and the wisdom of the heart. Come on in and join us. Vincent Horn is a mind hacker and co-founder of the popular media company Buddhist Geeks. His work focuses on the fusion of nascent technology and contemplative wisdom. In this conversation, we talk about the convergence of various strands of Buddhism and modernity and what it means to be a human being at this time. Here is our conversation. Today I'm in conversation with Vincent Horn, who is, I believe his title is Chief Geek. Yeah, that's right. Buddhist Geeks. Vincent's interest is the fusion of nascent technology and contemplative wisdom. So welcome to The Naked Monk, uh, Vincent. We've spoken before on your website. It's a pleasure to have you on mine. Yeah, it's great to be here. I feel like I'm wearing too many clothes to be on the Naked Monk. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll, uh, we'll strip you down a bit. <laughs> great. I think that's a part of what we're both trying to do anyway with uh, contemplative practices. I noticed that although the title of your website is The Buddhist Geeks, you talk about contemplative wisdom rather than Buddhist meditation. And this segues very quickly into the overarching topic of our conversation or the starting point, which is, does Buddhism matter? We just had a little chat before we started and you said, well, yes, of course it matters to you. So could you explain why you came to that conclusion? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a couple things there, I guess. Um, the first is, yeah, does it matter? And I think that question has been one that I've asked. I, I guess I framed it more as, is it relevant? Uh, then does it matter? But I think there's similar kinds of questions. And um, I've been asking that question since I got exposed to Buddhism like 10 years ago, because on the one hand, it was really clear that it was relevant for me. And so I guess the answer, obviously, it is it is relevant. Because if it's even if it's just relevant for me, that means it's relevant for someone. And obviously, I'm not the only person who finds it relevant. That said, I can see a lot of ways in which the relevancy of Buddhism is probably overestimated by those who are really in love with it. I guess any system of thought and practice where people start to hold it in a kind of rigid or dogmatic fundamentalist fashion, like it becomes very quickly that there's an overestimation process that happens where people think it's way more relevant than it really is, or that it's way more important or the way more profound and start to lose sight of the real blind spots that it seems like every system has, at least from my perspective. Would you say that, that what's happening is that it's becoming an end in itself? Is that the problem for those people? I think the problem that what I've seen is by, by sort of thinking like this is the most important thing ever, it enables people to go really deep into it, you know, and give themselves to it in a way that a real learning and transformation does happen. 
But then, and I've done this. I've been, the reason I can talk about it, I feel like with some confidence is that I, I've done this. And, and the problem that I found was the more I got into it, the more myopic my worldview started to get. And I started really framing everything in terms of awakening as the most important thing, or at least my conception of what that is. It does seem to have this tendency to draw you in, make you identify with it, and then cause you to disidentify with it. And yet, at the same time, it still has more and more to offer. Does that work for you too? Yeah, I, I mean, I find my relationship, it's, and I think you hinted at this, like, I find that I fall out of love and then back into love in a, in a kind of almost predictable way with, with the stuff. And I, I, I have seen that I've been able to utilize somehow the ideas in Buddhism to, to support me in going beyond my ideas about it. And that is one thing I also really love about it, because you can find that kind of language and that pointer within the system same time, I think that's not unique to Buddhism. I think there are a lot of systems that point beyond themselves, like the best systems do, because how else could they evolve if they didn't? So yeah, I, I've noticed that falling in love and falling out of love and being like disillusioned and then finding something there that's very simple and speaks directly to my, to my experience of life at the moment and the challenges and opportunities there. And I find that I've gone through like several cycles of that. The downside of the cycle that I've most recently found myself in is really just feeling a lot of disappointment in my teachers and in the, the, the tradition itself. And I think also in myself. Which tradition do you mean? Well, I've mostly spent time in the insight meditation tradition, but then also I've spent some time with a couple teachers that are sort of outside of that, that are connected with the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition of Burmese, you know, Theravada Buddhism, and then, and then some Zen teachers. But anyway, a lot of people that I spent time with and different, you know, practices, just finding that I, this kind of overarching disappointment and disillusionment, that's like, it's been a few years running now that I've really been wrestling with this. Have they become for you more human than you you'd initially hoped? Is that it? I th I think that's part of it, yes. Yeah, seeing the, just coming to terms with the humanity that that we're all humans, and that Buddhism isn't going to change that. Which, of course, you know, you could say, oh, well, you find that in Buddhism. It's like, yeah, you find that in Buddhism, but that the the depth of that realization, in my experience, just keeps going. It just keeps going deeper. It's not like it has an endpoint. It's like, oh yeah, I figured out everyone's human. At least for me, I haven't seen that. Okay, this is very interesting. So what is the role in Buddhism of disappointment? That I don't know because I see it handled differently by different people and I can see conflicting perspectives on that within the larger Buddhism tent. So I think it's tricky. <laughs> I don't know that there, I don't know how Buddhism deals with that. I came to an unusually firm decision about that a few years ago. On most of this stuff, I don't like to get tied down, but I was reading, I can't remember what I was reading. I think it was a, a Buddhist sutra. It was, it was something very simple, maybe something from the Dhammapada. And it struck me that the, the Buddha's point is that our problem is illusion. And if that's the problem, then perhaps the solution is dissolution. And when I look back on all the disappointments I've had in Buddhism, and they've been sort of massive, 
for me, they, they, they were life-changing and, and profoundly depressing in, in some times. And yet they led me somewhere that I don't particularly feel is a bad place. To turn, or quite the contrary, I think it's an extremely healthy place. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, this is okay. So just to be philosophical, you know, for a moment, you know, the, the illusion and then disillusionment. I'm with you on that. And I, I found every disappointing, disillusioning phase that I've gone through in the end, like it has led to a much better position where I, I was just not as worried anymore about about some of the things that I used to be concerned about. It's not like they go away. They're just no longer issues. So I've been wondering, kind of more looking, I've been sort of more looking at it almost like an evolutionary process where, you know, we start from this one position of just kind of being, you know, basically having unrealistic ideals, you know, in my case, that somehow my teacher should be a certain way or that I can count on them for certain types of things. And I just made that up. I, I came up or, or sometimes I even, I even got the ideas from them. So, so it's not that they're not complicit in this as well, but you know, I, I can see then there's a process of, in my own case, where I've started to question those assumptions and I see that there are assumptions there. And then I try to hold on to them for a while and think, no, no, this is actually how it is. And there's this whole struggle. And at some point then there's like a, you know, like a dark night of the soul or a disillusionment and it can last, you know, at least in my case, I've noticed there, there have been years of time where I just feel really disillusioned and, and just frustrated and, you know, pissed off and, you know, all of that and hypercritical. And then at some point, what I've noticed is there's another phase that happens where the pendulum maybe swings back or there's a new position that's found. And I, I sort of think of it in terms of the, you know, the triadic logic of Kant and Hegel and the, some of the German philosophers where they talked about, you know, like Hegel, for instance, talked about kind of a movement between three things. And he talked about the abstract and then the negative and then the concrete. And to me, that movement to the negative, that reaction away from the illusion that I'd found myself in, that I'd basically put myself in, not that I personally just put myself in, in there, but it was also a social construction as well. And then coming into this new sort of understanding of like, oh, okay, that's there. And I can't get away from this by simply rejecting it. That's what I found my relationship to Buddhism has continued to be, that I fall in love with it, then I get disillusioned and I try to reject it. And I nearly completely abandon it before I realize that that's not going to work. And then finally, I find myself coming back into relationship with it in a new way. And then suddenly I'm like, okay, whatever, Buddhism, fine. This is the weird path that I'm on. And I can't simply ignore that. Um, I have to continue working with these tensions and not taking the easy way out, which is to completely reject everything. I have to say it's very refreshing to hear a, a prominent Buddhist person and teacher speaking so frankly about this it's not something that in that in our generation we could take for granted by any means i think it's not that common even today so i think this is great and let's go back one step the words that i introduced you with actually come from your own website the fusion of nascent technology and contemplative wisdom the first time i read that I thought, wow, that's a, a very narrow focus to put this whole Buddhism thing, whatever Buddhism is, into. 
but you've maintained and expanded on that very impressively. Clearly, you've got a lot of scope in that, I guess we could call it a mission statement. How is it working for you? Well, um, I think it's working okay. You know, how how we actually are phrasing our, we call it our Buddhist Geeks koan. Um, and this is something that I came up with with my friend um, Hokai Sobel a few years ago when he was visiting in Los Angeles. We sat down at a coffee shop over a few days and we started kind of thinking about like, what is Buddhist Geeks? Like, what is it actually serving what does it exist to do? And we came up with a question that was the kind of question that seemed to be driving the whole process up to that point and that we wanted to continue holding. And our question, which is similar to what you just stated, uh, but slightly different actually, is how does the convergence of Buddhism, evolving technology, and then also kind of increasingly globalized culture, how does the convergence of all of those things coming together slamming into each other how can we serve that or how can we participate in that in a way where something useful comes out of the convergence and from the beginning there's a recognition at least on my part that we can't serve that convergence by pretending that it's not happening meaning we can't just try to replicate forms because those forms were developed in worlds that were so vastly different from the one we live in now that it's just it's unfathomable in a lot of ways to consider. You're now talking about traditional Buddhist forms. Yes, traditional Buddhist forms. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can see exactly that you seem to have really hit the nail on the head. Well, you know, the proof is in the pudding. In the response you get to your website and, and the Buddhist Geeks Conference, it, it's, you've certainly um, touched a, a nerve. Yeah, I think there's a nerve there. And I think part of it has to do with, I think, honestly, a lot of the tension that people feel in the modern world, and I've felt this a lot, is, okay, I, I have these different areas of interest. You know, I, I'm a meditator. I work, you know, in this particular field, say I'm like a community developer, and then I have a relationship and I have kids. And there are all these ways that modernity like enables us to kind of have lives that are pulled from all of these different kinds of perspectives and areas of life. And then the tension that I, that I think it brings up immediately is how the hell do all of these things fit together? Like what's the relevancy of this one thing in relationship to these other things or into the, or to the whole, you know, so when we're asking the question, you know, how does, how do we serve this convergence? I think what we're really asking is, how do we understand what it means to be a human being in the time period that we're in now? And that, and that question definitely transcends, um, but I think is included within that is Buddhism, because Buddhism is, a, is an attempt at answering some of those things. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if that makes sense, but... Well, it's beginning to make sense, yeah, no. So, so my next question to, to you, I don't know how you're going to handle this one, but so to you, what is Buddhism? now here for you that's a good question yeah that's difficult um definitely feels like it's many things and i feel like in many ways personally i will only scratch the surface of what that means in my lifetime really i think so i think so be because, you know, for instance, um, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my practice was spent in the insight meditation tradition. 
And I feel like I only just started really getting into that um, in 10 years. And then now I'm, I'm studying Zen practice uh, and koans in particular. And it's like, oh my God, this is like, in many ways, this is a completely different world. There's some overlap for sure. And I'm still trying to understand what that overlap is. But at the same time, it's also completely different from, from, my, from my experience. The studies are different. And the practice is different, and the, what I'm learning from it is different. Is the point not the same? That's a question I've been struggling with a lot over the past couple of years. Because I think one of the, going back to the modernity part, I think one of the ways we've learned how to cope and deal with the crazy complexity of the modern world is to sort of lump together things that seem related and say, oh, they all have the same aim. And therefore, we can kind of like more easily understand it in our own minds, how these things are related. It also makes it easy for us to ignore differences and assume we've got it figured out. I think that's the other thing that sort of helps too, which it, it, it sort of, it, it lends a sense of false security, I think, to assume that everything has the same aim or the same point. And I don't know if that's true or not. I, I really question that. I, I'm really questioning that at the moment. I, I really get the sense that the, that the, the type of awakening that Zen and in particular the Rinzai form of Zen that was taught, you know, by the Sambo Kyodan school is significantly different in a lot of ways than what I learned from the Mahasi Sayada, you know, Vipassana path. And it's leading to different insights and different kind of ways of orienting toward, toward things. The language is different. And I tend to agree with what Hegel said, which is that perception is theory laden, that you can't separate out your perception and language and the practices you're doing from quote unquote reality, because it's all, it's all bundled in together, at least from what I can see. So, so how realistic or justified is it for these different schools to refer to themselves all as Buddhists? What what is the common denominator here? One of the common denominators I've noticed is that Buddhism is largely focused on the first person subjective experience and has come up with various, to use a geeky academic term, soteriological you know aims, like ways of liberating oneself in that first person experience, ways of finding some sort of freedom. Uh, or some sort of liberation of the heart or awakeness. But then how each of those traditions talks about that seems to me to be radically different. Yeah, but to get back to the practical point, what are we trying to be free of? Are they all trying to be free of the same thing? Well, you know, the guy that I'm studying Zen with right now, David Loy, who you probably know, I was asking him one day about non-duality because he wrote a book on the subject, <laughs> which is pretty funny. But... Um, I was asking him, I was like, you know, David, it seems like there are different kinds of non-duality or different kinds of awakening. And he said something that really, like, it really crystallized for me, like what the tension I've been feeling and why. And he said, yeah, there are as many non-dualities as there are dualities. So how do we, like, what is freedom? Freedom is always defined in terms of what we're free from or what we're free to do. So if in the Theravada school, we talk about freedom from the 10 fetters, you know, freedom from desire, freedom from conceit, freedom from rites and rituals, freedom from, you know, all of those, all the different fetters. 
then the awakening that we describe is understood in terms of of what it, we're free from. But then in Zen, you know, they talk more about it in terms of freedom to, like freedom to manifest certain actions spontaneously and freedom to punch a Buddha in the face when you see him in the road. You know, it feels like a different quality of freedom. I, that's how I've been tending to think about it is that the, they're cultivating different types of freedom based on what they think is problematic to begin with. So these different approaches. I see. I can see why you think you might not be able to exhaust all this in, in, in a single <laughs> lifetime. And, 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 and so what that's led to one thing that I've really been, the, the result of kind of considering that as a possibility is, okay, well, that frees me up so that I don't have to like be this perfect Buddhist practitioner and I don't have to necessarily worry about realizing the ultimate truth. Instead, I can actually start focusing more on uh, and this is something that I really got from Ken McLeod, which is focusing more on the questions that are actually driving me. What are the questions that are actually motivating me to even care about this stuff to begin with? And the way Ken sort of talked about it, which I, made a lot of sense to me, is that all of these different contemplative practitioners throughout history, you know, they came up with a system or practices or an approach or whatever that was basically their answer to the questions that they had. And that's great if I share the same questions with them, but it's not so great if we're looking at different things or care about different things and I try to force myself into a particular mold and force myself to kind of realize whatever they were trying to realize when it doesn't actually matter to me that much. And, and so that's, that's the other kind of implication for me of this what happens when you no longer assume that all of these things are aiming at the same thing is that then we have to get more, have to have more discrimination about what they are aiming at and how that actually relates to what's important to us. So uh, how are your questions? Are they manageable in scope or are they sort of becoming like an octopus for you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think more the latter. And I'm assuming that even you're asking that question, you have, you probably have your own experience of that. Well, I have, yeah, I do. I also have my own question, which has been, how, how can I live more sanely, really? It, it gets continually refined and the, the, the words I use to state the question become shorter and more blunt each passing year. That seems to be not just the question, but actually the answer itself is evolving. That's, I think, what it's meaning for me anyway. We'll see what happens the next time life comes at me from left field. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of checking in, isn't it? So with this in mind, you're combining nascent technology with contemplative wisdom. That works both ways. You're not just using modern tools to teach and communicate Buddhism, but you're using Buddhism or those questions which mean some sort of Buddhism to you to what to change the way you use the technology or define it or, or encapsulate it yeah no this is a great question because this is where i think this points back to the fundamental way that we've been approaching things with buddhist geeks and when i say we i mean the few people that are on on our team and kind of our close friends and that is taking these two distinct areas okay nascent technology contemplative wisdom or Buddhist wisdom or however you want to talk about that, then basically 
sort of seeing what happens when we collide the two. So we put them in contact with each other without the assumption that one of them is going to sort of overtake the other or subsume the other. Um, it's not like Buddhism is going to integrate technology into it or technology is going to subsume Buddhism. Rather, what happens when we legitimately collide these very different ways of looking at the world? How do they impact each other? And not does, how does one impact the other? Because I think the mistake that a lot of Buddhists have been making with technology is they're trying to learn how to fit technology into their pre-existing ways of looking at the world and trying to make it kind of mold. And whereas like what I'm interested in is what does technology have to offer Buddhism that doesn't just enable us to do what we're doing better, but actually completely changes the way we understand what we're doing. Well, you asked the question. I, I mean, I think there's some some insights have come from that process of questioning, for sure. Um, one of the things that I'm really curious about, and I'm, I'm really learning a lot about from the technology space, are from things like agile software development and user-centered design methodologies. There are these whole schools of kind of thought and practice that are arising in the technology field of developers and designers and creators and makers who are finding new ways of creating things in a world that's much more chaotic and much more rapidly changing the conditions of it are. And one of the things I love about that is it just, it just parallels so, so beautifully, like the whole, okay, I'm going to contradict myself here because I don't think this is the whole purpose of Buddhism. But it's definitely one of the things that's been core for me, which is how to live in an experience that is constantly, groundlessly changing, relentlessly changing. And what I've really been appreciating from the technology sector is that they're talking about things like speeding up iterative learning feedback loops, for instance. That's like one of the geeky tech tech terminology which which basically means how can we create a loop a feedback loop in which we tighten that loop as tight as it'll get and we can learn and question our assumptions as quickly as possible to figure out whether or not they're accurate and then take that learning and put it back into the next iteration of whatever it is that we're creating and then test again so so it goes through this sort of iterative cycle of like Build, learn, and then rebuild. Build, learn, rebuild. Build, learn, rebuild. And that to me is really, it's an amazingly efficient way of learning when you're dealing with a lot of untested assumptions and a lot of change. So improving communication by accelerating it. Yeah, that'd be one way of putting it. Um, and, and then the question is, okay, well, how does that, change how we might look at Buddhism, because that's not how really how Buddhism has been practiced in the past, I don't think. Like it was mostly, it mostly looks like you go, if you're lucky, you find someone you can get instructions from in your village or whatever, say in Tibet. Um, if you're lucky, you have, you know, you can even get access to one person who has got some knowledge and something. And then you take that in and then you go off and you practice with it a long time. And then you come back some point, hopefully you get feedback again, you know, or the feedback loops in traditional 
practice environments were way different. And probably also, I'm guessing, maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe this is true in monastic environments. Maybe there was a more transparency. But I'm, I'm guessing, too, the level of transparency of people talking to each other about what they were learning was probably different. That's very interesting. I, I would... I could make a case for saying that the point of Buddhist teachings is not knowledge, by which I mean it's insight, or even even more, to put it in another way, that it's about letting go, especially letting go of thinking that we know and thinking that we understand things. I can totally get with you on that. Uh, I don't think it changes what I was saying about feedback, though, because most of the way that I've learned how to let go is through relationship and through talking with people and through sorting out and being able to give voice to the things that I'm wrestling with. Um, not just through sitting with it by myself in isolation. And so in that sense, having this kind of tight feedback loop at least gives us, you know, a structure in which to be able to maybe develop not just knowledge, but, but something deeper than that, maybe a kind of wisdom or, or something. So would you say then that, uh, to, to use this modern language, that Buddhism brings something to design? Yes, absolutely. And that's the other side of it. Obviously, you can find this in the world of design, but the fact that Buddhism is so focused, again, on the first-person subjective experience, and so, so many of the methods are so attuned to subtle shifts you know, in perception, in the way that we experience the sensory field and the way that we react to things. There's so much deep knowledge that can be gained from that kind of introspective development that when you put that into contact with the world of design, it's like this is a whole nother dimension of design that's not just focused on like design theory or color theory or you know any of these sort of external theories, but it's more of a design that's informed from within, from within the sort of first person experience of what it's like to interact with the world and to interact with things and to, to see how it changes us in the process. And I think that's where Buddhist contemplatives have a lot to offer back into these different things that designers and technologists are creating is like an actual sense of how it affects our conscious experience. Because, I mean, I think everyone who's listening to this has had the experience of going on Facebook or going on Twitter or going on one of these social media sites and just feeling like the effect on our consciousness was that we suddenly felt like there's something we're missing and if we keep scrolling far enough downward, we'll find it. <laughs> you know? It's another form of samsara. <laughs> totally. And, it, and actually, the whole design of these things is intentionally designed that way. But also, the design is, un, is unfinished. It's left to us to complete the design, isn't it? The user becomes part of the design process as well. Yeah, and, and, and in the best design processes, that's true. The users are incorporated into the design. I think in the case of some of these, the infinite scroll mechanism, for instance, it was actually designed based on the understanding that people, when they don't know what's going to come next, it's kind of like, it's kind of an internal sense of gambling. Like you just cut, you keep wanting to scroll so you can see what new thing comes out. If you knew what you were going to get, you wouldn't keep scrolling. 
Um, so, so that right there is based on a, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, we look at that, we're like, oh, so basically what you're saying is this, this mechanism was designed, built, built around understanding the nature of greed and basically incentivizing that. <laughs> and, you know, what would it be like to build a, a system, uh, which is based on something different or cultivates a different kind of state or relationship to, to that information? Um, and that becomes to me like a really interesting question that if people were asking and if they created something based on those those questions that uh, they probably would be pretty successful technologies. People often ask me, uh, my, my students often ask me what I think about all this um, social media revolution and the accelerating pace of information and, and the obsession of young people with, with little screens. And my first response is to say, well, you know what, Let, let's wait another generation and ask their children what they think of their parents. Because, you know, as children generally react in some way in, in, in new directions to their parents, sometimes revolting completely against them, how do they perceive this, this addictive quality of social media? And will they even know that it's addictive if it's the baseline? Because the only way it seems like we know that it's addictive is because we remember what it was like before. I'm not sure about that. I was watching a TV program with, with Caroline, my wife, the other day, and it was set in the 1970s. Now, we're, we're, we, we both grew up without any of this technology. I grew up without computers. I got my first computer when I was 30, and I was an early adopter. And yet, when I look back on those times, I find them incredibly foreign. I find them almost inconceivable. I spent half my life in that time. In fact, my, the, the time in which I, I, I was formed and, and, and developed myself was in that time. And yet it seems to me completely foreign. I can't even imagine what it's like to live without it now. It's the most peculiar feeling. I'm not sure what to do with that feeling, except to recognize that it's really peculiar and it makes me gives me the heebie-jeebies somehow. It is interesting, isn't it? One experiment that my wife and I have been doing lately is to unplug from the internet once, uh, one day a week. Yeah, I saw that on your Twitter feed. That's great. It's 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 been really interesting because, like you say, it's really hard to remember, and, and probably like you're saying, it's impossible to actually go back and and sort of understand what that was like. But I do think it's possible to get a glimpse of what it's like by unplugging and by experiencing the contrast. Like going into a silent retreat. Exactly, except, except it's a little less scaled back, uh, just, just unplugging from internet, not unplugging from you know every technology and not unplugging from conversation or whatever. It's not like, like that extreme, but, but I think it's, it, it, you're right. It, it's got a similar kind of effect where suddenly the contrast becomes clear and the way that our mind operates becomes more transparent to itself because we have no recourse to go and use the technology. So the impulse arises to tweet, which honestly, I, I'm sort of embarrassed <laughs> how much that impulse arises within my experience on Sundays. <laughs> and it's it's so interesting to see that and to notice, like, oh, and, and it's also been really interesting. I've, I've, I've started reflecting on some of this, what I've been learning from those periods of unplugging. And one thing I've realized is, on the one hand, unplugging has made me more independent. 
because I can go off and people can't get in touch with me, right? It's very difficult. So we have to kind of plan ahead. Oh, I'm going to meet you here at this time. And it, so it's kind of crazy to kind of relearn those skills of how do you coordinate when you don't have this always on communication technology available. Um, and so there's a sense that I felt like I was going out into the wilderness, you know, just by going down into Boulder for a few hours by myself because I was untethered. Um, and so it felt like there was a sense of more independence. On the other side of it, though, I felt actually that there was an increase in dependency, too, because I could no longer shift what I was doing in a moment's notice. I had to be sort of dependent on these sort of plans that we've come up with because I didn't have the ability to text my wife and shift things in the middle of it. So I became on the one hand more independent, on the other hand, more dependent. And I just noticed the weird paradox of that. And I figure there's probably a lot more ways that we've gotten certain benefits, but then also lost certain things that we probably aren't even aware of. Well, for sure. We haven't adopted all this technology for no reason at all. I mean, there are advantages. Although, you know, one of the things that I miss is getting lost and just being being with that, just just sitting with that sense of, oh, I don't really know where I am. This is let's look around and see what's going on. Yeah, I I have a couple I have one friend in particular here in Boulder who she never uses any of the Google Maps or any of that technology. And so we sort of joke with her that she's going to be our navigator in the zombie apocalypse if it happens. <laughs> Everyone's got to have a kind of role in the zombie apocalypse and hers is navigating, getting around. Let's get back now to Buddhist geeks okay. and to does Buddhism matter? Or as you, as you put it, uh, as many people have put it in these conversations, is Buddhism relevant? How do you see its relevance in, in the way that Buddhist geeks is growing? Or in, rather than talking about Buddhist Geeks as an organization, let's talk about it as a body of interest out there, which is responding to, to what you're doing in Buddhist Geeks. Well, one thing that, that I've been seeing, and it's, I have to preface this by saying it's, it's challenging on the one hand for me to assess this stuff because I'm so involved in it. And I think there's a certain distance that I just won't be able to, to conjure, you know, and so I, I just preface what I say with that in mind. One thing I've noticed, uh, the response to Buddhist Geeks, I think in part has been because we didn't immediately assume that technology is harmful by itself. And we didn't immediately assume that the aims of technology and the direction it's heading in is somehow antithetical to the aims of Buddhist practice. And I think that non-polarizing or non-dichotomizing from the beginning, I think that really spoke to a lot of people, especially people that are a bit younger and, and just have a different orientation to technology. They don't tend to be quite as cynical as maybe some, some of the older generations have been. And I think all of that can be pretty easily explained by just the fact, like you said, you got it. You you know, you got your first computer when you're 30. You know, some people, they touch the first computer when they're 50 or 60. And for this coming generation, probably the age was like four or five, you know, when they first started getting immersed in, in technology. So I think a lot of it just has to do with those generational differences. But that's one thing I've definitely noticed is by not setting those things up as 
opponents, technology and Buddhism, that it, it opens up a different kind of conversation. And it's not like, how do we mitigate the damage of technology? It's how do we talk about the real dangers and the real downsides? And how do we utilize it? So in, in that context, then let's talk about Buddhism as being a way of embracing life. Does that make sense to you? It does. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me now. I wouldn't say like the 10 fetter model that I mentioned earlier, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a life affirming model for awakening. I'd say it's more about getting rid of certain types of experience in the human condition, in the human range. Uh -huh. Seeing what's problematic. Yeah, seeing certain kinds of experiences problematic, whereas like, you know, maybe some of the more tantric schools of Buddhism sort of flip that notion in some ways on its head. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I tend to like that way of looking at it more now. But well, wait, do you mean do you really mean tantric or you just mean uh, Mahayana? Uh, both, both, both. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're obviously different, but I've been spending most of my time with, with Zen lately. And, and there's a way in which they took they seem to have taken the dualities that previous schools assumed and they they flip them on their head completely and in that sense they they go from denying life to affirming it in certain ways and to me that that makes a whole lot of sense as a general movement and then of course the tantric schools which i i don't know as much about but it seems like there are all sorts of practices related to taking the energy of certain intense afflictive emotions and actually like utilizing those instead of trying to like break them down or get some distance from them or transcend them or anything like that. Which sounds great in theory. And it can cause great confusion, which is the reason, of course, why it's, uh, there are many warnings about it. How do you see translating, as, as you did earlier, that the, the sense of Buddhism into simply the explosion of mindfulness today, which is bringing more people to a contemplative point of view than or a contemplative practical life than has been traditional in the West. How do you see Buddhism as affecting us and as affecting modernity? Do you think it really is going to have a long-term effect or do you think it's there's a faddish aspect to it certainly do you think that's likely to wear off or translate it into something more significant more concrete yeah i mean i i, I have a sense that of course there's the fad dimension of this i mean it's just there's so much excitement and so much there's so much stuff being written and talked about in terms of mindfulness is like this is a cure-all or can and they can be applied into like every context imaginable and you know it's like way i think it's way being overestimated in terms of what what the real benefits are that said it seems like it's developing something and i i think of the mind and life institute and what they were trying to do as being in some ways one of the prime causes of this or they were at least helping build some momentum around this exploration. That's the conversation between the Dalai Lama and the scientific community. Yeah, it's this whole intersection, again, another kind of convergence point uh, between mostly neuroscience and cognitive science and Buddhism. And out of that, I've, what I've really been excited about is seeing the number of young, contemplatively trained, like very deeply trained scientists that are now doing all kinds of research. People like Dave Vago, who's at Harvard studying mindfulness, 
and people like Willoughby Britton at Brown, Judd Brewer at Yale. There are all these really great contemplative neuroscientists and contemplative psychologists, folks that are duly trained in these different disciplines who are, again, to go back to that analogy, they're not trying to conflate one into the other. They're actually looking at them on their own terms and wrestling with how they relate. I think that alone, if that's all that comes out of this whole mindfulness thing, that alone is going to lead to what I imagine will be another wave of something. I, I see this as a kind of wave and I imagine there's going to be more waves. One of my, one of my friends sort of said, well, maybe the next wave is going to be compassion, you know, because mindfulness obviously is just one thing out of a much larger system. It's sort of cherry picked in a way. And there are a lot of other really profound, deep experiences and principles and practices that can be kind of similarly boiled down to a word, single word. And what about compassion? You know, what about wisdom? What about, you know, focus? You know, there, there are these other things that haven't really impacted modern culture yet. Maybe mindfulness is starting to. We have more traditional um, sources for, for compassion teachings, don't we? In, in Christianity, for sure, in, in, in Judaism, in Islam even. Yeah, I mean, for sure, they, those, those, all of those religions, like compassion and mercy, are, are like a huge dimension to it. But I wonder if, because we're living in this secular society, it seems like we have to, we have to learn the lessons from outside of those religions somehow <laughs> for them to be real. <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's enormous disillusionment uh, on those traditional, on our ancestral religions, more more so. That's one of the reasons I think the Buddhism is appealing to people because it's. Being foreign and being distant, uh, there's less judgment attached to it. It's easier for us to see it with fresh eyes. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's to be to be honest with you. That's why I've been a little skeptical of the whole secular Buddhist movement. Um, even though I love what's happening in it, is that I think it's still a kind of reaction against this period of history that we're finding ourselves in, where we're trying to disidentify with dogmatic religions. Just period. And I don't, I don't think, I think we're, what I, what I, what I imagine is that we're confusing religion itself with that type of religion. Yeah. I, I think the emergence of dogmatic atheism has sort of been a real thorn in the side of this whole movement. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right on. So what, what would it look like to, for, what would a Buddhist engagement look like? That's neither secular nor religious. Uh, that those are some of the questions that I, and that's the reason we haven't abandoned Buddhist geeks and, and renamed it as mindful geeks or something. Cause I do think there's something there, you know, that Buddhism also can be understood as a religion. It's not just that, but it, I mean, that's one dimension to it. So, and there, there's stuff in there that we haven't been able to, uh, to really learn from yet in, in, in a way that's meaningful in the West and in the, maybe in the global situation. Well, that's great. This is, uh, I think, the message here is the that, that let's keep our labels nice and simple. Let's try and stick to the root, and that will enable us to learn more from all this rather than trying to adapt it to, to modern times. Yeah, or at the very least, let's hold both of those without trying to to go this the easy route of conflating one to the other. Exactly. Well, that that seems to be what you started out with your Buddhist geeks con. And I think that's the middle path. You know, that that's one way of understanding the middle path is uh, to experience two extremes simultaneously without rejecting either, and see what arises. That's great. 
I really appreciate this conversation with you today, Vincent. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. For more about what you've heard in today's podcast, visit thenakedmonk.com. You'll find an entire webpage devoted to this and other podcasts, as well as dozens of provocative blog posts. You can leave comments, chat with other visitors, and email me, Stephen Scatini, with your comments and questions. The music on this Naked Monk podcast is The Sound of Vibor by David Kuckerman from his CD, The Path of the Metal Turtle. The Naked Monk is a labor of love. If you'd like to support our work, you'll find a donate button on the left side of our website, just under the logo. Or if you think there's some way you can help the Naked Monk grow, please send me an email. Thanks for listening. See you next time.